uh, I continue to write about and go back to Ambigua's neighborhood. I write as a, a, a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times about the many changes that have occurred in Central America that continue to push Ambigua's out. And last year we had 76,000 children apprehended at our southern border, the highest number ever of Enriquez, children traveling alone with no parent by their side and coming to the U.S. and being apprehended, 76,000 kids. Uh, so this is a bigger issue than ever. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. This is a very special episode of Highest Aspirations, not only because of our well-known and highly respected guest, but also because almost all of the questions come directly from our listeners. We'd like to thank everyone who contributed to this episode by submitting questions for Sonia Nasadio, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist and author of Enrique's Journey, and would love to keep the conversation going. You can use our voicemail feature to share your comments so we can share them in future episodes. Just use the link in the show notes of this episode to join the conversation. We also want to offer a special thanks and congratulations to Emily Galitli from Carteret County Schools in Moorhead City, North Carolina. She is the winner of our drawing to win a copy of Enrique's Journey. Thanks for the great questions, Emily, and to everyone else who contributed. During our conversation, Sonia and I discuss how she was inspired to write Enrique's Journey, how themes in the book connect directly with the students we work with, what we can do to help curb the cycle of violence that forced so many to flee countries like Honduras, and much more. For those who may not be familiar with her work, Sonia Nasadio is an award-winning journalist whose stories have tackled some of this country's most intractable problems, like hunger, drug addiction, and immigration. Her works have won some of the most prestigious journalism and book awards, including two Pulitzer Prizes. She is best known for Enrique's Journey, her story of a Honduran boy's struggle to find his mother in the United States. Published as a series in the Los Angeles Times, Enrique's Journey won the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing in 2003. It was turned into a book by Random House and became a national bestseller. Her recent humanitarian efforts to get lawyers for unaccompanied migrant children led to her selection as the 2015 Don and Arvone Frazier Human Rights Award recipient by the Advocates for Human Rights. She was also named a 2015 Champion of Children by First Focused and a 2015 Golden Door Award winner by HIAS Pennsylvania. In 2016, the American Immigration Council gave her the American Heritage Award. Also in 2016, the Houston Peace and Justice Center honored her with their National Peacemaker Award. Nasario, who grew up in Kansas and Argentina, has written extensively from Latin America and about Latinos in the United States. She has been named among the most influential Latinos by Hispanic Business Magazine and a trendsetter by Hispanic Magazine. In 2012, Columbia Journalism Review named Nasario among 40 women who changed media business in the past 40. In 2018, she was given the Spirit of Hope, which stands for Hispanas Organized for Political Equality Award. She is a graduate of Williams College and has a master's degree in Latin American Studies from the University of California, Berkeley. She has honorary doctorates from Mount St. Mary's College and Whittier College. She began her career at the Wall Street Journal and later joined the Los Angeles Times. She is now at work on her second book and is a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. Before we get started with our conversation with Sonia Nasadio, just a quick reminder that you can stay connected with us by joining our ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. There you can leave comments about this episode and others. You can also engage with great content like our short video series, blog posts, and articles. And remember, you can leave a comment on this video by using our voicemail feature, which you will find in the show notes. Finally, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This really does help us to continue bringing you the best topics and guests on Highest Aspirations. 
As always, thanks for listening, and here's our conversation with Sonia Nasario. Sonia Nasario, thank you so much for joining us on Highest Aspirations. I'm happy to be here and happy to speak to your educators who I hope can help these immigrant children thrive. Absolutely. And I think that'll be the centerpiece of our conversation. This is the first episode that we actually, uh, out of, I think we've we've released about 80 now, um, that we have actually crowdsourced. So we'll be asking you lots of questions from folks who have read your book and who have questions, Enrique's journey, that is. Great. And who are kind of tailoring some of these questions to what's happening in schools with their students. So ready to get started? Yes. Okay. So the first question is kind of, I think, a pretty typical question, but I think worth going through. And there were three people who, uh, who wanted to know the answer to this question. I'll name who they are and from their school district as well. So Eliana Campbell from Rome High School in Rome City Schools in Georgia, Jennifer McGrainer from Pickerington Local in Ohio, and Mimosa, who didn't give her last name, but she has a unique first name, so you know who you are. She's in Broward County uh, in Coral Springs. Um, elementary school, Hunt Elementary School in Coral Springs. And their question was, they all had the same question, what was your inspiration for writing this story? And what message do you want to express to the readers? Well, the inspiration really was this conversation I had right here in my home in Los Angeles with someone who used to clean my house twice a month. And uh, she was trying to figure out what was wrong with me because I had been married seven years, Latina, no babies. I seem like a person, perfectly nice person to her, but all that added up uh, to her that there was some monster lurking within. So she asked, Missy Sonia, cuando va a tener un baby? When are you going to have a baby? And I didn't want to answer. So like a good journalist who doesn't want to answer, I redirected to her and asked her if she was going to have more children. And she started sobbing and told me about these four kids she had left behind in Guatemala that she could only feed once a day and that she had left them with their grandparents and come north and hadn't seen her children in 12 years. And so uh, I, I think it was more trying to understand this shift in uh, who was coming to the United States. I tended to think of migrants as overwhelmingly, you know, single men, but that things had changed and they've changed much more ever since that time, 20 years ago. Uh, the majority now coming to the United States are families from Central America, mothers with children. So really a majority of those here in the U.S. unlawfully now are women and children of the right. 11 million. And so I wanted to put a new face on who that neighbor is who's a migrant. Migrants had gone to beyond the six traditional states, had uh, followed the jobs to every state in the union, virtually every county in the union. And uh, this had to places that hadn't seen migrants in a hundred years since the Poles and the Irish and the Germans had come. And this had produced enormous uh, hostility in many of these communities. So uh, my feeling is always, you know, you should understand someone and stand in their shoes at least before hating. So this was my quest, was trying to show what's pushing these kids out of these countries and what they go through, what they're willing to go through to get to, to the U.S., that no wall will stop someone this determined, and who are your new neighbors here in the United States? And that, that's what I was hoping to do um, in launching out on this story 20 years ago. I, I, I never thought I'd still be writing about these issues, but uh, I continue to write about and go back to Enrique's neighborhood. I write as a, a, a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times about the many changes that have occurred in Central America that continue to push Enrique's out. And last year we had 76,000 children apprehended at our southern border, the highest number ever of Enrique's children traveling alone with no parent by their side and coming to the U.S. and being apprehended, 76,000 kids. Uh, so this is a bigger issue than ever. Yeah, absolutely. And a, a couple points that you just brought up that I think will relate well to sort of our audience, who are a lot of whom are, are teaching these students and care greatly for them. Uh, but many of those students are growing up in communities where, like you said, you know, they haven't seen migrants, I think you said 100 years or so. And, you know, just the understanding and the ability to have empathy 
um, for these students is, is crucially important. And I think many listeners will probably relate to, you know, they're maybe they're in an ESL or ELL department in a school in the middle of a place that's really not uh, too welcoming. And they're kind of the bastions of hope for these, right. these students. And you telling the story and providing that empathy piece, I think is just, is, is what probably struck a lot of these educators in particular. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I see this, uh, especially as my book has, you know, it's probably the most read book now in the U.S. about immigrants, and it's been assigned in hundreds of high schools and middle schools as a common read. And um, so not just to ESL students, but all the students in the school, mm -hmm. and I get emails every day saying, you know, I was raised racist and anti-immigrant, and to hate all immigrants, I was forced, usually forces in capital letters, to read your frigging book, but in putting me in the shoes of a migrant boy who's willing to go through a hostile world to reach his mother, it's such a universal theme of what any child would do, um, you, I, you change my opinion about these migrants. I mean, obviously, the best way to do that is to meet a migrant personally and understand someone who's standing in front of you, but the second best way is through uh, literature, which, which is what I attempt to do. Right. Absolutely. And I'll say that my, my uh, daughter, I believe, read, uh, read your book in seventh grade and we were growing. One of those was, force. <laughs> yeah. Well, but no, she, she, she loved it. I think this is actually probably the, probably, this is probably the only episode that I've done that she'll probably listen to and maybe excited <laughs> about. So thank you for that. Good. <laughs> All right. So that's enough about me. I want to get back to some other questions that, um, that, that our community members had. So Allison Teague is from uh, Kannapolis City Schools in North Carolina. Um, and I'll quote what she wrote. She said, Enrique's journey is so powerful for me because I have students whose stories are echoes of his. Based on your experience walking in his shoes, which you pretty much did, you literally did actually, and I'll let you speak more to that. What is the most difficult part of their journeys physically, mentally, and emotionally? Um, I spent three months riding on top of freight trains through Mexico to tell this story and then to expand what was a newspaper series into a book. I spent three more months uh, retracing the journey a second time. Uh, I think when I did the journey in 2000 and in 2003, uh, the most difficult part of the journey, uh, I would say of the journey itself, were the gangs that controlled the tops of these trains. And... Uh, some of these gangsters are from, uh, the, you know, in the mid-90s, the United States toughened laws towards permanent residents who had committed certain types of offenses, DUI, drug offenses. And we started uh, deporting criminals back to Central America. We had deported about 300,000 to Central America over the years. And uh, they didn't get a great reception by the cops there, so, so they turned around and started heading north again and found a good business on top of these freight trains. And I would see 10 or 20 of them roaming on top of every train, surrounding migrants and saying, your money or your life, and throwing people down uh, sometimes to those churning wheels below. So at the time, that was the greatest fear. I would say now the greatest fear are the narco cartels in Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, the narco cartels especially the Zetas, the most bloodthirsty cartel in Mexico, has joined with the gang to control those train tops and the migrant routes. And they give the gangs a bounty for every migrant that they bring to them, kidnap. And three to $5,000 is required by the, the, is asked of the family member in the United States to release, uh, basically to pay, pay a ransom for that migrant. And they prefer to snatch children as they're traveling north because often kids like Enrique uh, have a little scrap of paper with their mama's phone number inked on it. And so right. they use that scrap to demand ransom. This is uh, from, from relatives in the United States. And uh, this is why, uh, you know, 18,000 Central Americans a year are being, um, kidnapped. Uh, and uh, this happens on the on the northern border of Mexico. Uh, the cartels so control the routes that uh, everyone must pay uh, a certain amount to the to the cartels to be allowed to cross the US Mexico border. So they really control a lot of these routes, the smugglers have to pay 
uh, that amount as well. And this is why we're seeing these caravans increasingly is that people who can't afford a smuggler are, which costs $10,000, $12,000 now. The one uh, effect of border enforcement, greater border enforcement, is that these families are having to pay greater and greater amounts to the smugglers to bring their children north. So if you can't pay that, um, people come, are banding together in these caravans, hoping that by having greater numbers, it will protect them from being plucked off by these uh, kidnappers. Yeah. So basically. I would say those are the greatest, you know, there, there are other things that are psychologically very difficult for these children, leaving their grandmother or their aunt, who is really the only mother they've known and who they were left behind with in their home countries and knowing that uh, those, those relatives won't be able to, travel to the United States uh, legally and ever they won't ever see them again, never feel their touch or hug from their grandmother again. Uh, that's incredibly difficult. And, and also arriving here in the United States, I'd say psychologically the most difficult part. I mean, there are many difficult parts. There's, uh, there, there's the fear of having your mother walk out the door every morning and she could be snatched by ice and deported and you'll never see her again. Right. Uh, so what we're seeing in schools are uh, tremendous stress levels with hair falling out, eye twitches, um, children regressing to uh, bedwetting, and all because of this uh, stress that is being caused by uh, the ramping up in, in border enforcement and border activities in the interior of the United States as well. But once that child arrives to the U.S., as happened with Enrique, often there is this resentment that builds and this hostility towards their parent uh, for leaving them. And there are these huge conflicts in these homes. This is not unusual what Enrique went through. Uh, if you go into newcomer schools around the country, you see this, uh, this, this stress that these families are under because the mother feels that that child should be eternally grateful. She's come here. She's uh, lived with 10 photographs of her child. She's worked two, three jobs so she could send money back so that child could eat and study past the third grade. She wants Junior to be grateful. Junior feels like, you know, you abandoned me. You said you were coming back in a year and it took 12 years for you to send for me. Uh, you know, uh, so, so there's just enormous conflict in these homes, and that's very difficult for the mothers and also for the children. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, I, I think I think the teachers who are listening now are are probably well aware of what's happening here in the United States. They're seeing those patterns that you mentioned, that trauma, um, sort of, you know, you know, displaying itself in schools and outside of the school. What struck me, though, one thing about what you were talking about when it comes to the dangers that these migrants are facing along the way. And I don't know if many people know about this. I don't think I did before I read your book and I got a chance to listen to you speak a month and a half ago. The high level of organization between these gangs and the, uh, the narco cartels, and you mentioned the Zetas, I mean, it, it's really, I mean, these people are, you, I think you use the word bloodthirsty, but they're also highly organized. Am I right in, in saying that? Am I right also saying that probably a lot of people don't really know about that? Oh, absolutely. I, I mean, it is, a, it is a silent slaughter that occurs in Mexico as these migrants head north. They are now discovering hundreds and hundreds of uh, mass graves in Mexico, uh, and some are Mexicans that have been killed in this narco warfare, but in those graves also are many migrants. And so, and, you know, uh, uh, prob probably about a decade ago, we heard about the 72 migrants that in near Nuevo Laredo, where Enrique ends up on the northern border of Mexico, right. that's where he crosses into the United States. Um, you know, these, these migrants were abducted. They didn't want to work for the cartels. Often they abduct people and they put boys to work in the marijuana fields. They prostitute the girls. Uh, now increasingly they are killing people and harvesting their organs. It's unbelievable oh. what the risks that people face to get to the United States. Um, and so Nuevo Laredo, where Enrique hung out, uh, I, I would think, 20 times and I go into high risk zones and into war zones, I would think 20 times before going to Nuevo Laredo now. There are uh, pro bono lawyers uh, on the Laredo side of the border, on the U.S. side of the border in Texas, but 
none of them will cross over into Nuevo Laredo because their odds of being kidnapped are so high. Oh, right. That town is not controlled by the police. It is controlled by the narco cartel. And so um, these places are in incredibly uh, dangerous. We hear you know, all this spewing about the, the horrible caravans. Well, people are trying to stay alive as they travel north through Mexico. That's why they're doing that. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, so a related question here as I'm looking at the questions that people sent in. Um, Diana West from Maine Elementary uh, in Rome, Georgia. Um, she asked, how does a person simply manage to keep going when faced with such seemingly hopeless challenges, many of which you just discussed? Where does this strength come from? And this is the part of the question that I like, because this is the positive part. How can we help other people develop this, especially in ESOL children and in English learners or migrant children? Um, I, I think that, um, you know, part of this determination now comes from what is happening in these sending countries. El Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala is where the bulk of people now at our southern border are coming from. It used to be Mexico. Now it's these uh, very violent. Some of the most violent countries on this earth now are these three countries from Central America. And so some of the determination comes from uh, what's pushing those kids to leave now. But when I wrote Enrique's journey, the, the primary motivator for Enrique was to be with his mother again. And for many of these children coming now, they still have a mother in the United States they want to reach. But when the UN started interviewing these kids in 2014, with the first surge of kids, in 2014, we started to see a tenfold increase in these children at our southern border. Hmm. And what they found was that the primary driver now uh, was that somebody back home was trying to kill them. And um, the drug routes of drugs that come to the United States on um, these drug flights from Latin America, we are the largest consumer of illegal drugs in the world. And so these drug flights used to go through the Caribbean and the U.S. spent billions of dollars to try to disrupt those drug flights. So the narcos started instead landing these flights in Honduras, which um, developed the number one homicide rate in the world of countries now at war, not at war. It's now been supplanted by Venezuela, but it's still way up there as are the other three countries. And so in these, in these communities where these kids come from, when children or boys are 10, 11 years old, they are forcibly recruited into these gangs. You join or we kill you. Girls are told you're going to be the gang leader's girlfriend or we will wipe out your whole family. So part of that determination and grit is uh, what is now driving these children out. Uh, it's either you keep moving forward or you go back to where your life has been threatened. Uh, so, so how do you kind of develop and nourish uh, that, that grit that I've seen in so many of these kids? Uh, I think in schools, it, the most important thing that people talk about is a sense of feeling that you belong, whether it's uh, in uh, a middle high school or, or college, that sense of feeling that you belong, creating that sense of feeling that you belong uh, nurtures, nourishes that. Uh, I think um, feeling challenged, uh, you know, when I, when I'm, I'm first generation immigrant, I'm the only one in my family born in the United States, but when I went to college, uh, I had read very few books and I almost uh, flunked out of my first year in college, but that sense of going to a college with very high expectations, I went to the number one liberal arts school in the country, feeling challenged, uh, I think, uh, develops that having that connection to that teacher. I don't know, you know, I, I spent a lot of time in high schools and middle schools and people talk about uh, that child flourishing when, and, and, and continuing that, sense, that determination to succeed in school when they have that one-on-one -on -one connection to the teacher. Right. When they feel that that teacher cares about them, when they feel that they can tell that teacher I'm undocumented and not feel like there's going to be any backlash that she or he understands uh, why they came and that they're not a criminal or a rapist, <laughs> that they're a child who was fleeing these horrible circumstances in their home country, enormous trauma out what they faced in their neighborhoods now and to get here and trauma that they face now in the United States 
and that they have a welcoming home in that classroom. I think all of those things nurture and build uh, that grit and determination that these kids have. I, I believe that that grit and determination is part of our DNA as immigrants. Um, it takes a lot to leave your country and everything you know and dearly love, your language, your culture, your grandparents, your family, and set off into the unknown. So I, I think we're hardwired to succeed, but if teachers can provide those things, that sense of welcoming and connection, and we think that you belong here, uh, I think these kids flourish. Right. Yeah, we hear that all the time. You know, you'd be, you might be surprised by, you know, at a podcast uh, that talks mostly about how we can help English learners. Uh, maybe you wouldn't be surprised. I guess you shouldn't be. Uh, so much of it comes down to the human connection. You know, having yeah. somebody who cares about you, having somebody who's willing to speak a word or two of your language just so that you feel welcome. You know, having somebody be able to go out of the way and talk to you. I mean, that's that's crucially important. So I totally agree with you. And I think as a teacher, I, I, I can tell the teachers that are doing that because yeah. they say this child comes to me and tells me they're undocumented. They're telling me about their issues. Uh, that's a good teacher. That's a teacher that's creating that comfort and connection. Right. Which is not easy to do, but part of the part not of the easy. job. Yeah. Um, okay, so this 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 next question is actually a series of questions um, is kind of related to what we were just talking about. It's and I hope I'm pronouncing her name right, Emily Galicti. I will, I'm sorry if I didn't pronounce her name right, but she's from Carteret uh, County Schools in Moorhead City, North Carolina. Um, and she, I'll just quote her uh, her question. She says, "I understand that immigration is a major topic of discussion in our country, as well as in the countries represented in your book." For one in four Americans, it's the biggest topic. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for the qualifier. Um, however, I also have concerns about the quality of life in these countries where mothers are choosing to leave in the hopes of supporting their families. Having visited some of these places and seen the quality of life. What do you see as the greatest need or concern that is driving families to pursue such drastic measures? Um, there was a study that just came out in the last week from Doctors Without Borders. They're interviewing these migrants heading north from these three countries in Central America and the Northern Triangle. Two thirds of those migrating that they surveyed had had a family member uh, murdered or kidnapped or disappeared in their home country. So uh, it is, while there are other factors such as the lack of jobs in many of these uh, neighborhoods where I spend time in Honduras, you know, more than half the youth have, uh, have no jobs and no prospects for a job. I would say the number one thing driving people out is uh, violence. Last year, I spent time in a neighborhood in northern Honduras looking at the killing of women and femicides. And uh, many of these women are forcibly recruited to sell drugs in their neighborhood um, when they want to get out or the gang member who they're dating or has have been forced to date tires of them. Uh, four in 10 of them are being murdered in a way that goes far beyond mutilated in a way that goes far beyond what's necessary to, to kill them. Um, I returned from that trip having a nightmare every night that I was being skinned alive and I'm back in therapy as a result because this is what was happening to these women. One woman said to me, it's like they're a chicken and they're being uh, stripped down like a chicken. Uh, and they would kill women and leave parts of them in different parts of these neighborhoods to send a mes message to everyone. So it's the violence for these children. Uh, the violence prevents them from going to school. Half of kids in Honduras do not go on to junior high. 12% uh, of Honduras has no school at all, but most don't go on to junior high. And for many, that's for economic reasons, but also the gangs are recruiting in these schools, selling drugs in these schools. Uh, one neighborhood I spent time in four years ago uh, the enrollment at the high school had plummeted from 1,400 to about 400 because 20 kids had been murdered by the gang going to and from school. Uh, and so schools are very dangerous uh, places for these kids. So right. I would say the violence, I, th I think another uh, issue, and, and by the way, that's why I bemoan the fact that the U.S. has cut foreign aid to these countries. I have studied and written about in, the, in my columns in the New York Times um, about U.S. violence prevention programs that were actually working to reduce violence in these neighborhoods that have now been cut. 
I would say the second big issue that I also wrote about last year was is corruption. Uh, 30 to 40 percent of the budget of Honduras goes out the window through corruption. And to give you one example, supposedly there were 85,000 teachers in Honduras, but only 55,000 of them actually exist. 30,000 of them were ghost teachers. Ugh. They don't exist. Uh, and uh, so you have ghost schools in Enrique's neighborhood now. You have ghost teachers, people who are given a job through a political favor or because they had sex with someone or for some reason, or they paid to get that job. and. Uh, they simply don't exist. And, uh, you know, this, these are payments being made when there are no books in some schools in Honduras. So I, I think that's a huge issue. Uh, and uh, the third issue is the, the economic one, jobs, uh, especially for women. Uh, you know, there's so few jobs in a place like Honduras that for women, they tell them after they're 25 or 30 years old, you're too old to get a job. Uh, they feel that they're distracted by having children, that their fingers are not as nimble as they once were to work in factories. So as a 30-year-old in Honduras, as a woman, you're finished, you're washed up. You, it's very hard to get a job. So there is that economic factor in these countries. And I believe that uh, we will continue to see this flow north um, and, until we address the root causes this violence that is uh, pushing people out of these places. Right. Yeah. You know, and I just want to follow, I just want to mention, you know, you mentioned violence, corruption, uh, and economic reasons. And that one, one thing I would say is I think most people would think, oh, it's economic reasons. People are coming for, for work. But the other thing that you did with those three, just such extreme cases of all of those three things, you, the way that you described the violence, the corruption, and the economic uh, difficulties are just far beyond what I think many of us think of when we think of these um, people leaving, um, you know, Honduras or other countries to come here. And, and that, that leads to the next question. Emily had a really good follow-up, same person who asked the, uh, the last question. And she asked, do you see any viable alternatives to the situation besides what Enrique's mother and many others have resorted to? And I know you mentioned uh, foreign aid as being a possible solution. And I know you wrote about that in one of the articles that I read. We'll link to all those, by the way, because they're, if you read Enrique's journey, you're interested in this topic. Those are all phenomenal. But do you see any other alternatives, uh, viable alternatives to the situation right now? Um, I personally believe that uh, first we need to help uh, change conditions, lower violence, lower corruption, uh, build up very weak government institutions in these countries, and that it is far cheaper to do that there than to spend billions of dollars on these kids once they arrive at our southern border, and that most migrants would actually prefer to live where they're from if they can. Uh, so I think that's the first order uh, of business. Uh, I saw this in a neighborhood I went to four years ago where uh, it was the most violent neighborhood in the murder capital of the world in San Pedro Sula, Honduras. And we, the U.S. funded outreach centers where kids could go after school and get away from the gangs. Programs that were started in the U.S. that uh, identify the nine risk factors of going into gangs. You get kids a year of family counseling and it reduces their odds of doing bad things by 77%. And we went after the killers in these neighborhoods where in Honduras, 96% of killers get away with it because no one wants to step forward as a witness because the gang will kill you the next day. So we paid a nonprofit that convinces people over months building trust and they testify under a black burqa. And what we saw in that neighborhood was that now most of the homicides were getting convictions, a 62% drop in homicides in two years. And it cut the number of children fleeing to the north in half. This costs $100 million to do a year in Honduras, but it's way cheaper than dealing with uh, migrants once they arrive at our southern border. So I think first and foremost, we need to pressure our government to restore uh, foreign aid, to do um, evidence-based programs that we know will work and have a real plan in these places, which we don't have right now to try to address these issues. Uh, I think secondly, um, as I argue in many of my pieces in the New York Times, I believe we need to have more compassion on the front end towards people who are running for their lives right now. The U.S. Uh, during the World War II turned away 
uh, Jews who were fleeing Europe, turned away the St. Louis ship with 900 Jews aboard. We wouldn't let, let that ship dock at our shores. We've all read the diary of Anne Frank. We didn't allow her family to come here in 1941 when they applied. And we had a moral reckoning after the war. And we said, never again, we won't send people back to their deaths. But that's what we're doing in Central America. There was a report the other day that we have sent back, uh, of the people we've sent back to El Salvador, in recent, the last few years, 138 have been murdered shortly after being sent back to that country. So I believe that we have to have greater compassion towards people who are running for their lives. By the way, it says in our laws that that is what we must do. And I believe that our current administration is breaking our laws in many of the things that they are doing by barring people from uh, asking for asylum at our border. We're turning people away. Even if you get to the front of the line and you're able to ask for asylum, which can take months of standing in line at our ports of entry across the southern border, once you ask for asylum, they kick you back to Mexico while you await your U.S. court immigration hearing, and we're sending them to wait in places like Nuevo Laredo. Nuevo Laredo right now, the U.S. State Department has as a level four threat. That means no American should ever go there. That means the same level of threat as North Korea, Yemen, Syria. We're asking people to wait there for three to eight months as their court hearings, and of course they're being kidnapped by the cartels and killed as they're waiting. Uh, I believe we need to have more compassion on the front end, allow them into the U.S. You know, nine in 10 asylum seekers do go to their court hearings. It's not true that they don't go. They do go. Um, so that's the part that liberals like about when I say a prescribed. The part that liberals don't like uh, and that conservatives do like is I believe that if we give you, we let you in, we release you while you're waiting your court hearings, we give you a fairer court process. Uh, one of the things that really harms these children is that they're not entitled to a government-funded lawyer. And so six in 10 of these children is standing before that immigration judge with no lawyer by their side. I don't know if your teachers have ever been to a child immigration court, but to see uh, in, in, in the last year, we had 70 babies go to court alone, being expected to argue their own uh, asylum, legal asylum case, a complex legal case. This is ridiculous. So we need a fairer process on the front end. But I believe if you then lose your asylum case, if we are fair and we provide better due process, if you lose your case, I believe we need to be a nation of laws. And what Americans get riled up about is that we have a court process, we have a legal process, and people who lose thumb their noses at our system and blend into the woodwork. And I think Instead of ICE arresting that parent who's been here 30 years, where you're going to separate that parent from their three or four U.S.-born children, go out and have them arrest the person who has just lost their asylum claim. We can't take in everyone from around the world, and I think Democrats need a platform that includes the rule of law. And if not, I think they'll keep losing on this issue, quite frankly. So, uh, but I think I want to stress that for these children, the most important thing is because of the many traumas they've been through, to get them uh, help therapeutically. Yeah. And um, the second most important thing is to help connect them to a pro bono lawyer. I'm on the board of a nonprofit. We have offices in seven cities in the U.S. Um, it's called Kids in Need of Defense, and we, pro we have recruited 50,000 pro bono lawyers to stand by this child's side in immigration court. If you see that child unable to focus, staring at the window, tearing their hair out, they probably have their immigration hearing coming up, and they're worried about going to court with no one to help them, you know, uh, put together their case and provide expert witnesses and get police reports from corrupt police departments four countries away. So they need help doing this. Those are the two most critical things for these kids. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. That was, you just gave us a lot of information and I appreciate yeah. your, I appreciate it. I, I would, usually I, I can take things and then kind of process them and take some, some main points out. And I will do that in a moment, but I, I would encourage people to just click the rewind button or I don't even know if the rewind button I'm dating myself exists anymore. <laughs> Tap the thing that brings you back and listen to that again. Cause there was a lot there. But one thing that, that uh, first I'll say, I appreciate you talking about your sort of 
um, stance on the issue, not as just one-sided completely and understanding. No. That I, I have a very pragmatic view and I get uh, incoming fire from both sides. Of course, you're going to. Yeah, if you have that point of view, but that's also, I feel like, you know, an honesty and transparent point of view. And I appreciate you showing that here. Uh, the second thing is, you know, one thing that I that was really powerful what you said is you talked about the moral and economic imperative. And I feel like, you know, having compassion, the, 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 the moral imperative to do the right thing, to not turn people away like we did during World War II, um, and then the economic imperative to spend the money uh, at the root of the problem to save us money in the end, you're, you would think that you'd be able to reach kind of both sides there. Um, and I guess my follow-up is, is that a successful strategy? I mean, on the out, from the outside looking in, it doesn't look like it's worked. You know, I, I, as I travel the country speaking about these issues at universities, high schools, middle schools now, there's a young adult version of this book. Um, I, I find that when I lay out the case um, over, you know, the course of 45 minutes, uh, people on both sides uh, can see the other side and can understand a way forward. So it's just um, a matter of raising awareness then. I, I think it is. I, I think, unfortunately, uh, you know, we have a commander in chief who says they're all rapists and criminals and he repeats that every single day. And so um, if you repeat something often enough, you know, people will uh, take it in. And uh, we, we tend to watch the media that we already believe. If you're conservative, you watch, you know, One American News or Fox News, or and if you're liberal, you watch uh, MSNBC. And if you just want to be bored to death, you watch CNN. Uh, so uh, we confirm the views that we already have. We don't tend to get out of our silos. Right, right. Days. And so I think that's more of what I'm trying to do is to say, uh, you know, it's not only a moral imperative, it's our laws. If you look at the Refugee Act of 1980, the Immigration and Nationalization Act, the 1967 protocols that we signed on to, international laws that we are, have signed, we say that we will take people in. We say that we will not return people to harm. We say that we will give people a fair court process. These are our laws, and this is all being contested in the courts and fought over in the courts, what the president is now doing, but I believe strongly that he is breaking many of our laws. So uh, I, I believe that if you want to change our laws, that's fine, but you need to do that through a congressional process. Right. All right. Well, thanks for that follow-up. I want to yeah. go to, and Emily uh, asked the third question, but I think it's actually also within this next question that I'm going to ask. You've you've talked uh, openly, uh, both when, when we had a chance to see you speak here at Elevation a month and a half ago and, and during this podcast episode about the need for therapy after experiencing, you know, some of these horrible things. Um, and so Beth asks a, an interesting question. She's from Greenfield High School um, in Greenfield, Wisconsin. And she says, in the prologue, you wrote- Wisconsin, my birth state. Oh, there you go. Well, Beth, hey. Beth DeGuire will be excited. So, <laughs> and, so you wrote that you needed six months of psychological therapy to be able to sleep well again after you traveled in Enrique's footstep. I, I'm not surprised about that at all. Um, right. What do you think are the effects on individuals and society when people who experience such a journey without the safety net of a credit card, as you acknowledged you had, do not have access to mental health services? Are there any efforts that you are aware of to provide mental health services to people with these journeys? And you mentioned that that's something that we should have. Is that happening? What are you seeing there? So I think this is what has really been lacking. I mean, lawyers have really been lacking but uh, for these kids, but I think just uh, now there's been a greater recognition uh, only in the last couple, three years of the need for psychological help. And um, I, I think it, it's very hard to access free programs in communities. Um, I, I, I have seen that, for example, the nonprofit I'm on the board of Kids in Need of Defense now in all of its offices have has social workers that, that work with these uh, children as well. Um, what I like, you know, first I should say that uh, not every child uh, responds the same, same way to trauma. And right. what psychologists are now seeing is that you have kids like Enrique who, uh, you know, he, he, he has continued using drugs. He's continued to struggle, I think, because of the many things that he went through when he was young and started sniffing glue when he was young. 
Um, but there's many kids that I, I meet in high schools or around the country who come up to me and say, uh, you know, I, I, why'd you write about this schmuck? I'm, 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 I, you know, I'm in college. I'm studying to become a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer. Uh, oh, that's and, powerful. Um, what didn't, what didn't kill me made me stronger. And so psychologists now talk about this growing field that looks at post-traumatic growth, um, that, uh, that being stressed in this way. And I think that's what happened to me. I went through a lot of trauma when I was young, uh, which I will, uh, describe in, uh, which I describe in a New York times piece that came out in February 23rd on the cover of the opinion section, which really takes you through kind of a hundred years of my family running from danger on both sides of my family and my own traumas, um, growing up through the dirty war in Argentina, where the military took power and disappeared 30,000 people, uh, among them my own sister, who was nearly tortured to death. So um, I, I, I think that what didn't kill me made me stronger. And uh, so, so you have that. But what I like to see is uh, schools like newcomer schools, which um, I was just speaking in New York City, and there's probably the greatest uh, number is of these schools in New York City, 25 of them. In LA, we only have one or two where I live. Uh, but these schools uh, recognize that these kids have a lot of trauma. And so they have two to three times the psychologists on staff that normal schools have. They have teachers that have often lived these separations. 85% of migrant children who come to the US have been separated from a parent in the process of coming here. So uh, they acknowledge this is a problem. These kids are gonna have conflicts in their homes. We need to deal with it. Uh, culturally, Latinos uh, believe that, that therapy is for crazy people. So you need to couch it in a different way. Don't use the T word. Uh, mm -hmm. Talk about with mothers, we're gonna deal with your stress. Uh, you know, use some other phrase to describe what you're gonna do, but, um, but I think that uh, newcomer schools where you separate children for the first year that they come to the U.S., uh, you let them get their feet under them with other children. And we see this growing movement of these schools across the country in uh, heavily immigrant communities. Um, you also separate them from the second and third generation immigrants who are the most likely to haze the newcomers and call them wets and uh, make their lives miserable. So for a year, these kids have only other kids like them around them who have recently arrived. Um, that gives them the space to deal with some of these emotional issues that they're dealing with. Um, you know, both the trauma that they've left and the, on the journey and what they're facing right now in the United States. So I, I think that uh, therapy is hugely important and schools need to do a much better job of taking on these issues head on, whether it's, you know, a teacher individually with the student seeing these issues or uh, in, a, in a larger way. Yeah, and we've seen a lot of models that have worked, whether they be, as you mentioned, you're going through some of the newcomer um, uh, academies or newcomer schools, a lot, a lot of them uh, as well. Our Texas partners have them and they've been quite successful. And then there's other yeah, situations right. where, you know, schools have their own kind of newcomer programs and they have teachers that work with them. But, you know, what's the common uh, denominator is is people that are able to work with with people who have experienced trauma, you know, and, and, and people counselors. You know, that's that's a that's a key part of it, which goes back to the to the question that was asked. Right. Um, and we will link to that uh, to that New York Times article as well. So folks can read that as well. You know, it's no surprise that studies show that immigrant children, given what they've been through, are more depressed, uh, have greater physical and emotional issues than children who are born in this country. Given right. what I've described that these children are going through in their home countries. And I mean, most of these kids who set off don't reach our southern border. They are deported. Something bad happens to them. They're 60% uh, of the girls who set off on this journey are raped. Um, and then all the traumas that they're dealing with in the United States with the, the crackdown on immigrants. So um, it, it's no wonder that these studies show that these kids have, on the whole, greater problems than children born in the United States. Right, of course. All right, let's get to a couple questions more kind of specific to um, to school. So we had a question from Alfonso Duenas, who's from San Mateo High School uh, in San Mateo Union High School District in California. And he asks, um, what advice do you have for school district personnel 
teachers and counselors that you believe would better support youth fleeing Central America as they adjust and succeed in their schools here in the United States? Okay. So I wrote down a few things because uh, I would do a lot of things. Uh, <laughs> first, I would say, you know, start a newcomer program or newcomer school in your yep. community to support these kids. Um, I think you need to help the parents uh, adapt to their new country. Always so, an important um, topic with a family yeah. engagement piece is so, so crucial. You have to look at the whole unit and many of these parents, um, didn't graduate beyond the third or fourth grade themselves, so they can't help their kids with their homework. They're illiterate in Spanish, much less English. Um, so helping them uh, understand the rights and responsibilities of living. You know, in other countries, they pair up a migrant parent with a, a person in the community to help a, a better understand the rights and responsibilities of living in the U.S., they help yep. them understand that unlike in Mexico or Central America, where they put a teacher up on a pedestal and the teacher is never to be questioned about anything, they are God. Uh, in the U.S., you need to interact with the teacher and, yep. and hold them accountable for what your child needs. So uh, teaching them to interact in a different way with the teacher. And there are wonderful programs I've seen in many states like uh, Abriendo Puertas or Adelante, which help uh, work with uh, these uh, parents. Um, I would say that, um, that, that uh, it's important for, to lower the stress level for students to bring the ACLU into your school to uh, do Know Your Rights presentation so parents know what to do when ICE uh, shows up in their community or at their door. Um, help parents draw up a guardianship plan for their child. If that parent is picked up and deported, um, that child will not end up in the foster care system as thousands of children have ended up, but will end up with someone that that parent designates. And that can help lower the stress level to help parents uh, fill out that kind of paperwork. I, I think we need to have a serious look at the curriculum in, in many schools in this country. Yep. Uh, you know, students come up to me and say, nothing wrong with Shakespeare, nothing wrong with, you know, the canon and all those dead white guys that we've had to read. But uh, why can't we read stories that speak to my experience. I mean, many of my friends who have written wonderful books uh, who are Latino and have written about the Latino experience, uh, you put that book in front of the kid and they'll read it. And sure. the teachers say with great surprise, wow, I couldn't get them to read anything and they won't stop reading your book at the end of the class session. Um, kids want to feel that their story matters and that they're part of this nation's story as well. And so I think we need to have a serious look at our curriculum and how it incorporates their story so that you'll engage them in, in reading and learning as well. Um, I think we need to push politically for things like the DREAM Act. We're going to have a decision by the Supreme Court by June about whether uh, kids who were brought to the United States unlawfully, you know, they didn't make the decision to break the law, their parents did. Um, 800,000 of those uh, youngsters have grown up and have applied for the, 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 the um, DREAM Act protections where they can now uh, go on to college, get degrees, work legally, uh, are protected from deportation. But that's, according to the questioning that happened in the Supreme Court, they're probably going to throw that out. And I'm guessing that Congress uh, will not act on the DREAM Act, but they will need enormous pressure to do so. Yeah. Um, those DREAMers have 250,000 children who are now in our, our public, in our largely public schools, and those kids are under enormous uh, stress, as I mentioned, you know, uh, showing signs of that stress physically. Uh, and so I think we need to push for uh, the DREAM Act and uh, the Refugee Protection Act, which was in, uh, was uh, introduced to Congress in last November, which also um, tries to roll back some of these things that we're doing at our southern border. Um, and I think we need to uh, push for in-state tuition uh, to go on to college so these kids feel like they have um, an opportunity to go to college. They see a future for themselves. I right. mean, why would you fight to keep going if you don't see a future for yourself in college? Why would you fight to get through K through 12? Um, in California, where I'm at, we have uh, massive grants and loans for 
undocumented students to go uh, to on to college. If you're in one of the states that doesn't fight for that, or provide your students the many lists that now exist of private donors that provide uh, grants to undocumented students to go on to college. And I'd say finally, I'm a big proponent of a program in California called the Puente Project. Um, and I'm on the advisory board of a group called Catch the Next in Texas and New Jersey. They're trying to spread that California model to other states. But the Puente Project exists in uh, California high schools and also in community colleges. And it provides an English class that, uh, you know, doesn't exclude non-immigrant uh, students, but it's mo in California, it's mostly Latino students. And they have, again, they have a psychologist in that classroom uh, and who's there all the time during that one class period. They read culturally appropriate uh, literature. They bring in parents at night for a noche de familia, a, 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 an evening for parents and the children in that, that classroom. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and maybe a father will stand up and say, you know, I was afraid to let my daughter go to college away from home because I was fearful for her safety, but my daughter went off to college and it's fine and she, she's, nothing bad happened just to send that message to the other parents in that, uh, in that immigrant community. So these, the Puente Project has been very successful using this model uh, of, um, of getting these kids through high school and then getting them through community college to four-year colleges. So maybe look at that kind of a model. It's out of the University of California uh, Chancellor's Office is leading that, that pro project. Look at what California is doing to see if that model would work for your community to uh, support these students better as they uh, make their journey through K through 12. So those are just some of the things I would throw out there that would help these uh, kids uh, as they're making their way through K through 12. Yeah, those are, that's a lot of things and it's great. A it's a, it's yeah, a great list. The <laughs> one thing that I'll, that I'll say, I feel like I've seen some uh, movement. I, what the, programs like the Puente project that you mentioned, I feel like are happening, maybe not right. formally, but they are happening and, and there's sparks. Right. The other thing that I'm seeing uh, quite a bit is this, you know, that you mentioned, you know, Shakespeare's great, but why don't I read something, you know, that talks with my experience. This whole, there's been like a, like a surge of what teachers are now calling cultural responsiveness, cultural responsive teaching strategies. Right. Um, and, and I think I often preach to the choir when I talk about this. I don't know if I'm being honest how frequently this is actually happening in schools, but it's certainly getting a lot of press right now in education circles. And it's something that people are thinking of. And I think that's really important, not only for this group of students that we're talking about now, but for everyone um, to have that, that culturally responsive lens. In fact, we just interviewed, and it'll come out in a later podcast, a gentleman in Portland, Maine, who has his whole mission is to create what he's calling reading refuges, places where uh, he, he collects these books. He's got, you know, 20 books in a little um, milk crate with a cushion on top so that the students can read books in their home language about their home cultures with their families. Uh, and it's just this tiny little thing that he started in Portland, Maine, and now it's becoming a big deal. And that stuff like that is just so inspirational and so great. And that yeah, that's great. And I'm seeing that. I went, I, you know, the other thing I might mention is um, uh, in Watsonville, California, a very agricultural town, many migrant workers. And, you know, you hear, well, you know, in the study show, uh, immigrant parents don't read to their children uh, as, uh, as other parents do. And, uh, that's true, and that sets these kids back. But uh, what I saw in Watsonville was that they had the whole high school read my book in English, but then they handed out copies in Spanish yep, yep. to parents. And 800 of these parents lined up for two hours to have me sign their book after my talk to them in Spanish. And they, they, they wanted to tell me their story of leaving their child behind and how it had affected them. And you know, they say they won't read. Well, they did. If you yeah. target them, yeah. if you uh, cater to them, if you tell them, you know, we're going to bring you into this process, I found that it works. So that might be another strategy. Yeah, absolutely. Now you have a conversation starter with a, with a family right. who might not have it otherwise. Well, around so reading. many of these kids have not had a conversation with their parent about how they came, why yeah. they came. Yeah. There's, there's so little knowledge sometimes. I mean, often there is a lot of knowledge, but I'm astounded at how few of these conversations have taken place and they read my book and then, then the child interviews the parent and it's often a wonderful connection with that parent.
That's great. Just that in and of itself. If that's the one thing that's accomplished through all this right. work, amazing. Yeah. There's so much more that has been, but that's that's just such a nice touching piece. So we're running out of time here. And so I'm not going to get to all of the questions, but I want to ask a couple of questions that we ask all of our listeners. And the first one I think is, is interesting for you because, you know, the question is, is there a book or other resource that has influenced you in your personal or professional life? Clearly, the, the writing Enrique's journey um, had, had a very uh, distinct, um, you know, uh, influence on your personal, I'm sure, and professional life. But is there something that you'd like to share with listeners um, other than that particular book, which, which we all know about and are excited about, that, uh, that's had that kind of influence on you? Well, you know, um, prior to Enrique's journey, I had a whole life of writing widely about social and social justice issues. Uh, I wrote um, two story series that um, won many awards. One was looking at hunger among school children in California and how increasingly school districts were, because of political reasons, being increasingly dominated by members of the religious right, were not availing themselves of federally funded breakfast programs. And I showed how that affected learning in one school district and how kids were hungry. And when you focus on your stomach, you're not focusing on your brain. And um, and that led to California um, going from one third of all public schools feeding breakfast to two thirds of them doing so overnight. And I wrote a story, a series called Orphans of Addiction. It was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize as well. And um, it, it dealt with what children go through, the one in four, five kids in America who grows up with a parent who's addicted to drugs or alcohol. So I had this whole life uh, prior to Enrique's journey where I wrote, wrote very broadly about social and social justice issues. And I, I'd say if there's one story it, uh, that, that I tell in my New York Times piece that I mentioned, um, when my, my father died when I was 14, suddenly of a heart attack, we were living in Kansas, and my mother decided to take us back to live in Argentina, where both of my parents uh, had grown up. Uh, it was uh, during this very terrible time where the military took power, and one day I was walking with my mother uh, along the streets of Buenos Aires in Argentina, and I saw a pool of blood on the ground, and I asked her what happened here, and she said, the military killed two, two journalists, and I said, why? And she said, those journalists were trying to tell the truth about what's going on here. And I know that today we are called the enemy of the people. It's <laughs> a term used uh, by the Nazis against the Jews. Yeah. Um, but I, I have lived my life believing that um, I can set my personal baggage aside and I can wade into an issue and try to be fair about it. And uh, see the good and the bad and see it in a clear-eyed way and, and convey that reality, that truth to my readers. And that's what I've attempted to do in a lot of my stories uh, that have followed Enrique's journey in the New York Times, where I go back to Enrique's neighborhood. In writing that story I mentioned about corruption, I stayed with Enrique's sister, with Belki, in this neighborhood, uh, writing about how corruption makes people feel that things are so rotten that they will never get better and uh, that they have to leave this place. Um, in Enrique's neighborhood, one in four businesses have shut down completely because the gang comes to them and says, every Monday you have to pay a war tax to them, extortion, or we will kill your whole family. We will set your business on fire. Uh, so I want to show people the reality. When, when our commander in chief says, you know, they're faking it, they're not faking it. Uh, I leave these neighborhoods when I take off on that plane from Honduras. I feel this huge relief that I have gotten out of that place in one piece. And I only spend weeks in these places. So I, 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 I feel like that, that experience when I was very young of seeing the need to go in as a journalist and try in a clear-eyed way to tell the truth uh, has set, set the really the path for my life. Yeah, well... I think we're the beneficiaries of it. And we certainly here uh, appreciate the work that you've done. And I think I speak Thank for you. many, uh, many, and just, just, you know, you, the stories that you told briefly in this episode and that you, uh, that you talk about before uh, the, the book and, and everything else about you actually doing what you did to get the story, spending time actually on top of these trains. 
Uh, and, and then you just told me about all these other things that you've done, which I frankly didn't know about. And I don't know how you have the time or the energy to do it, but I'm, I'm glad that you do. And again, I speak for, I'm sure many who, uh, who feel the same way. So my okay. last question, Sonia, is, is how can people learn more about the work that you're doing? We're going to link to a lot of the articles that we mentioned. Um, I know you have a website. Where, where can people go to learn more? So my website is enriquesjourney.com with no apostrophe in Enrique. And uh, I put my new New York Times pieces on there. There's also a page uh, on the New York Times website with my work. Um, I have a TEDx talk um, that many people look at. So there's a page with kind of my current work. There's pages about me. Uh, but there's also, most importantly, a section for educator resources. There are teaching guides, amazing teaching guides that people have spent six months in different school districts putting together to work with Enrique's journey from middle school, high school, college level. And there's um, uh, resources that uh, there's, there's a section about Enrique that shows video of him. Uh, so um, there's a whole wealth of resources there for educators, which I think is one of the reasons the book has been so adapted as Common Reads. A uh, hundred universities have chosen this. It's been among the most chosen books for that purpose. But one of the reasons is all the resources that I keep up to date on the website to help educators, because I know you have a lot on your plates as well. Yeah, for sure. And I, you know, again, we appreciate that. We will link to that. Um, and again, you know, circling back to, to my, my own child was one of the people who read the book and I saw the impact that it, that it had on her. And I'm just uh, really grateful for, for you writing it. My wife and I both read it, um, and discussed it. And it's just led to such amazing conversations in my own family and schools and our company here at Elevation. And I'm sure among lots of people who are listening. So Sonia right. Nasario, thank you so much for taking oh, an welcome. hour. Uh, to speak with us. It's, it's really has been a, a highlight of this sort of podcast journey for me. And I hope that listeners take a lot out of it. Well, thank you. I, it's been wonderful to be here. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.